Hello, I'm Claire White. And I'm James Foey. And we are Dragon Sexy Robots and Adventures, a nerd manual. We are here to discuss new and old nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and the stories. Today, we are talking about The NeverEnding Story. The NeverEnding Story is a film that premiered July 20th in 1984, directed by Wolfgang Peterson, and is based on the 1979 book by Michael Ende. In the story, a young Bastion Bucks suffers from being bullied as he's on his way to elementary school and secrets himself away with a book called The Neverending Story in which he follows the adventures of the young hero Atreyu as he attempts to save his fantastical world from the nothing which seeks to devour it. Over time, young Bastion will find that he is actually playing a part in the story. And we are back to our regularly scheduled programming. We are actually going to pair the never-ending story with the comic Die by Wicked and Divine writer Kieran Gillen and the artist Stephanie Hans, also from Wicked and Divine. So we're very excited to be back. Summer's almost over. We're focused. We're ready. Here we go. And in the never-ending story, I'm going to be talking about the, I guess, the history of fantasy being kind of an not main accepted by the mainstream medium, fantasy and sci-fi, and the people who read it and why they're always perceived as outside the mainstream. And James, you're going to talk about? I'll be talking about the making of it, uh, including the special effects and the adaptation um, from a novel to a screenplay that was done by Wolfgang Peterson. And uh, I think I'll really be focusing on the issues that Michael Enda, the author of the best-selling book upon which the movie was based, uh, the issues that he took with that adaptation. Okay. Well, I guess I'll start taking it away. So rewatching The NeverEnding Story for the first time since I was a child, what I was struck by was the idea of fantasy as an escape from real life. I was also struck that it was the quote-unquote weird kid that was the outsider that was doing the escaping. And from what I understood was that he didn't fit in with the quote-unquote mainstream. And so to not deal with the problems in his life, he turned to books, fantasy books especially. And what I wanted to look at, which we've already touched on here and there throughout our podcast, but not in this kind of concentrated way, was why fantasy and sci-fi seem to exist outside of mainstream culture and why there's this stereotype of the people who read it being outcast in their culture. So in the literary and critical world, even with the success of Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, and Game of Thrones, there is this snobbery towards fantasy. I mean, all you have to do is look at Gina Belafonte's disparaging review of the first season of Game of Thrones in the New York Times, where she talks derogatorily about fantasy. And in fairness, she was called out on it by multiple people from multiple outlets. And even though the internet rushed in to defend fantasy, there is definitely snobbery in the literary critical world towards genre pieces. And I even fell into this trap in my early 20s, right after I graduated from art school and started reading for pleasure for really the first time since high school. I had this idea that I needed to read only the most critically acclaimed books. And the thing is, if you had asked me then what my favorite genre was, I would have told you high fantasy, but I just wasn't reading it. Instead, I spent years focusing on only the top 10 New York Times critics' picks because I thought it was what I should be reading. 
If you look at the prestigious fiction awards, they almost always go to works of literary, quote-unquote, fiction, and fantasy and sci-fi rarely even get considered for them. If works of fantasy and sci-fi do happen to receive high critical praise, they are rarely referred to as sci-fi or fantasy. Think 1984, Fahrenheit 451, or A Handmaid's Tale. Sometimes this is even at the author's urging. Margaret Atwood, who wrote The Handmaid's Tale, famously said that her works weren't sci-fi because there were no spaceships or monsters on them. Though she's cooled down in her later years and has been calling her work sci-fi. That's interesting. Probably because she, I mean, she wanted her work to be taken seriously and was like, I'm not with these people. <laughs> yeah. Added, and she probably didn't think of it herself that way. She wasn't trying to write a story about spaceships and monsters. Yeah. Or pulp fiction. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to say that I don't regret those years or those books that I spent reading in my early 20s. Many of them were wonderful. But when I finally came back to fantasy and science fiction, it felt like I was walking into the warm arms of someone welcoming me home. Also, now reading these fantasy books from an adult perspective with way more reading and experience behind me, I could recognize that some of these fantasy works I had read were phenomenal masterclasses in world and character building. And in my opinion, in a way that literary fiction rarely even attempts to master. If you think about it, a lot of times fantasy and sci-fi authors build completely new worlds on top of creating interesting characters and thrilling plots. And I think when this is done well, nothing is better. Uh, to push the point even further, fantasy is one of the world's oldest genres, maybe the oldest genre. The Iliad, the Odyssey, Beowulf are all foundations of Western literature, and they are all part of many you know, literature curriculums in high school and in college, and they're fantasy. And I do want to point out that a lot of times when we study these classics, they usually aren't labeled fantasy. They're labeled classics. Mm. Um, so why is it that this incredibly difficult craft that has been around for centuries is looked down on and almost disdained in many critical circles? I'm going to repeat some things that we've said before in other podcasts, but kind of pulling it all together here. For a long time, fantasy and folktales were told orally and were for everyone. Around the Victorian era, probably with the help of stories like the Grimm's fairy tales and gothic fiction, fantasy stories started, started becoming material for children. And since then, for the most part, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, no one has questioned or debated fairy stories' appropriateness for kids. From Alice in Wonderland to Peter Pan to Disney movies, Snow White and Aladdin to TV shows like Batman and Avatar The Last Airbender, there are very few people arguing that kids shouldn't be consuming these fantasy tales. Now, can I ask a question? Were Grimm's fairy tales actually originally meant for children? They were not, but they became meant for children. Okay, because Tolkien has some words on that about the things that adults don't use getting put in the attic and children play with what's yeah, in the attic. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. I, over time, they became modified for children because that's what they were popular for. So that was the first step in fantasy stories becoming fringe material for adults. Fantasy was something you indulged in in childhood, but then you grew up, went on to reading serious material, and grew out of fairy tales. Also, as discussed in our Three Hearts and Three Lines episode, there wasn't a fantasy genre until the phenomenon that was the Lord of the Rings books. Until then, fantasy was either children's books or associated more with science fiction. And the most predominant fantasy or science fiction material, besides children's stories, came from pulp magazines, which not only were associated with the younger audience, but had titillating covers and material, so were deemed scandalous and very lowbrow. 
pulp magazines were also associated with comics, which we've talked about it on the podcast before. There was a crusade against them in the 1950s led by psychiatrist Frederick Wortham. He claimed that comics were detrimental to young people and led them to become delinquents. This movement was so successful, it almost completely destroyed the comic book industry and definitely gave comics and those who read them a bad name. So you can see how fantasy and sci-fi reading wasn't encouraged. It was considered childish material and associated with material that could possibly make children turn delinquent. Childish and degenerate. There was also the satanic panic in the 1980s associated with D&D, which stated that the game encouraged devil worship and your child could be likely to commit suicide if they played. It's not that fantasy and science fiction weren't popular. It's just that they were kept out of the mainstream, except for some very notable exceptions like Star Wars. And you can imagine, with all these ideas aligned against the genres, that it started to gain a reputation of sorts. This wasn't the type of literature that was encouraged. You would, wouldn't want your kid to necessarily read this. And a lot of kids and people who gravitated towards these pieces tended to be outside of the mainstream. Now, again, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's fair to say that as a culture, America tends to value physical prowess and a can-do attitude instead of necessarily being the smartest person in the room. Mm, we like quick thinking, though. Not yes. necessarily a depth of knowledge, but quick, quick thinking. thinking. Yeah. And we might, in fact, say that we don't have to be the smartest to be the best. Maybe the quickest thinker or the best athlete or, you know, the nicest guy, the coolest, chillest, nicest guy. Nice is even wrong, but you know what I'm getting at. A more self-contained bookish person is less likely to be a popular kid in school, even if he or she is held up by the teachers. So if you're not popular for one reason or another and feel like you don't fit in, you might disdain the mainstream and want to escape, maybe to a world of fantasy or sci-fi. If you're already marginalized, yeah, it's easier to— Yeah, go to the marginalized literature. And, like, also, if you don't fit into this world, well, maybe I can find another world to escape to. I read so many articles on fantasy and science fiction as an escape and if there is value in that and why a certain type of person gravitates towards, you know, fantasy and sci-fi. And there were no, like, conclusive answers. <laughs> um, today, the Internet overall seems to believe that escapist literature, which is what sci-fi and fantasy get looped into— is a valuable thing and a way to explore issues and problems in a healthy, albeit indirect, way. There are also quite a few people that say that fantasy and sci people who escape to fantasy and sci-fi don't have a strong grasp on the world as, say, those who confront it dead on in literary fiction, that and you're kind of avoiding it with fantasy and sci-fi. The never-ending story disagrees. Yeah, and we can argue back and forth about that for the rest of the podcast, though you probably guess what, uh, what points we would support, and I'm speaking for you here, but, you know, if you feel like I'm speaking wrongly, tell me. Now, I wanted to look at fantasy and the people who read it being outside the mainstream because I think that's still the general perception. And um, it's a little different for us because we're in the midst of the nerd world kind of all the time. So it seems normal for people to read fantasy books, but I don't think it's completely normal. Um, and I also think, I mean, I also know that was what was portrayed in this movie, The NeverEnding Story. Fantasy and sci-fi are more mainstream now, though maybe still not critically acclaimed and held up as masterpieces. 
Fantasy owes a lot of its acceptance to books like Harry Potter, which inspired a whole generation to read, and movies like Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, as well as fantasy sensations like Game of Thrones. I kind of want to end this with, like, uh, how is this going to end up looking in the end? I'm curious if the genre becomes a non-issue and high fantasy and science fiction start regularly winning Pulitzers, or if the genre stays mainstream but still looked down on by highbrow critics, or if this is all a fad, this, you know, sudden boom of fantasy and science fiction popularity, and it fades back into the background of our culture. It seems really hard to call something a fad if it's been around for thousands of years and is the bedrock of all the other kinds of fiction that people value above it, right? Even Right. It just has never been so popular in our modern American culture, you know, if we're looking, you know, the 19th and 20th centuries. So it's it's just to me very interesting that it's popular now. Is it going to stay popular? I, I think so. I'm inclined to think so. I'm also really curious if it ever reaches critical heights. Right. If, if the vast amount of money that something like the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Star Wars can make in yeah. Game of Thrones for HBO with Which are disparaged by a lot of, you know, highbrow media. Yeah. But I, then it makes me think, you know what, before Star Wars, George Lucas was watching Buck Rogers and loving it. Mm-hmm. He made more money with Star Wars than Buck Rogers ever made, but it, you know, it he he came from that legacy, which I guess, in a sense, is a fantasy—the kind of adventure, you know, cowboy fantasy. Cowboy in space, <laughs> we love it. Yeah, but anyway, that's kind of what I'm positing, and I had a lot of problems, like really nailing down, like why nerds, or I shouldn't say nerds, people outside of you know, mainstream gravitate towards fantasy and science fiction and why they kind of have that reputation. I mean, besides the obvious that, like, it's something that you can escape to and if you don't fit into American culture, or not American, but your culture that's predominant, here's something that maybe you can fit into that's different and really cool and better than, you know, where you are. Just last episode when we were talking about our favorites and you brought up the big book of science fiction uh, edited by Jeff and Ann Vandermeer, uh, we were talking about the role that science fiction has played, especially in very autocratic societies like the Soviet Union, and that it now plays in China, where that's an opportunity for those who aren't happy with the current system who may not be given a voice or may be punished for having a yeah. voice to get it out. That sounds so much better than a kid who's not good at football reading a fantasy story. <laughs> There's a lot of reasons to want to escape this world or try to... Uh, try to learn from a world that is not exactly this one. Reasons to get away and train your mind and come back in, you know, mm -hmm. as they as they do in The NeverEnding Story. With that, may I begin? Oh, of course, yeah. Yes, and I'm, I'm incredibly interested in the idea of marginalized peoples and the role that fantasy and sci-fi play. I'm sure we'll be talking about that more in our podcast. <laughs> I'm really glad you brought it up for this. Um, so, as I mentioned before, The NeverEnding Story premiered July 20th, 1984. We're actually at the 35th anniversary of it this summer. Oh, good timing, us. It is. Also, lots of articles came out about it because of that, which makes it easier to research. <laughs> <laughs> good on us, too. So, it was directed by Wolfgang Peterson. It's based on the 1979 book by Mike. Well, I kept calling him Michael Enda in my head, but really, it's Mikhail Enda. Oh, wow. Yes, so... 
Uh, Enda is a German author, just as Wolfgang Peterson is a German director. It's a German film, and the book was the number one bestseller in Germany when it came out in 1979. It was then joined at number two and three within just a few months by two other works by uh, Enda, who I will now refer to only by his last name. <laughs> Those works were Momo and The Mirror in the Mirror. They stayed at the top for more than three years. And this the reaction of the German literary community to this directly relates to what you were just talking about in your segment. Enda said that the literary community's reaction, quote, ranged from amazement to black rage. You can enter the literary salon from prison, from the insane asylum, from a whorehouse, everywhere but from the children's room. <laughs> and, you know, we talked about how uh, the fantastical was simply just, you know, even though he was targeting this specifically at children, it is still a lengthy, rich book that is in the fantasy genre and therefore somehow is not supposed to have any value it is only for the children. It is only a plaything that adults should leave behind in the attic, right? Mm -hmm. uh, his book was in part so popular because it was loved by the anti-nuclear movement in Germany. According to People magazine, the book became something like a Bible for them because wow. of its utopia creation, that it's a, at the heart of the book, if not the movie. I think that the literary world's reaction to him left a bit of a chip on his shoulder and a bit of an insecurity in how he would be perceived as an artist. And so he brought that baggage with him to the creation of the movie, which he was invited to be a part of, and which he was ultimately extremely dissatisfied with. He actually referred to it as that revolting movie. Mm. Which, of course, is a beloved children's classic. <laughs> <laughs> Directed, as I mentioned, by Wolfgang Peterson, who came to this giant undertaking of a fantastical enterprise with a great deal of confidence because he had just directed the second most expensive German film in history, Das Boot, which means The Boat. That came out in 1981, three years before Neverending Story, which then became the most expensive German uh -huh. film in history. <laughs> Doesn't he's got, do things cheaply. No, he does not. And he, he likes big projects, apparently, or at least when he was in the, the prime of his powers. He actually began development on Das Boot in 1979 as The NeverEnding Story was topping the bestseller charts for books. Mm. Uh, and w it was still there years later <laughs> after the movie Some had Harry released. Potter stuff. It certainly is, uh, the resentment of the literary community included. <laughs> uh, so, just to understand the scope of what he had just accomplished with Das Boot, it was a two-and-a-half-hour-long adaptation of a book by Lothar Gunther Buchheim, probably butchering that. I think he did great. Thank you. Uh, that Buchheim had written about a World War II U-boat crew that participated in the Battle of the Atlantic, and that book came out in 1973. That film was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Director for Wolfgang Peterson and Best Adapted Screenplay, also for Peterson. Now, in making this adaptation, he'd had the captain of U-96 as a consultant, right? And the book that he was working with was the most popular fictional work about World War II that it had been written at that time. 
In Germany or in the world? In Germany. Really big deal. Also, the author of that big deal book didn't like the adaptation. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he had tried to have it made in Hollywood, couldn't get it done, had it made in Germany, and as soon as Wolfgang got picked to direct it, the author sent him his own script for the film, which would have created a six-hour-long epic. Ah. Uh, <laughs> well, nowadays it would have become like an HBO series or something. It certainly would. They would have milked it for all it's worth. But that back in those days, Wolfgang said, thank you, but no thank you. <laughs> And then he adapted it for something that he got an Oscar nomination for, for that adaptation. Mm. And that film is considered one of Germany's greatest films ever to this day. Makes me want to watch it. Yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? It took $18.5 million to make, but grossed $84.9 million worldwide. Mm. Big doings. Next movie. The best-selling, never-ending story. <laughs> he will adapt it. He will direct it. And he spent $27 million to make it. Most of the film was shot at Bavaria Studios in Munich. The city shots, if you're wondering, if you've seen the movie, that is a neighborhood called Gastown in Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada. Uh -huh. And I just want, talking about the director and his collaboration with the author and how that went south, we also have to talk about how he didn't get along with the star of the film, Noah Hathaway, the 12-year-old boy who plays the hero Atreyu in the magical world of Fantasia. Now, he said that Noah was something of a diva, that his parents had all these demands and that the kid and the way that he acted on set was clearly from his parents who were practically blackmailing the production with their demands. That's what he says. Noah Hathaway's side of the story is that now in his late 40s, he still has a back injury from the stunts that they had him do. He was in the hospital for two months, got two titanium screws put into his back before he could get back to work on this film. He said, now also, I, I should also mention, uh, the director, uh, Peterson, cast an American who only spoke English when his English as a German actually wasn't very good. And so this 12-year-old child actor had to take direction in broken English, and it took a lot for him to understand. No translator? No translator, mm. for him to understand what Peterson wanted. The money of this film very, very clearly went into creating a handmade spectacle that wowed and awed children of the time. I want to say a lot of money went to that. A flat $50,000 of that $27 million went to uh, Mikhail Enda uh, for the rights, the film mm. rights to the movie, and for his help writing the script. At the time, they were using the world's largest blue screen, which was the predecessor of the green, green screen. Yes, that we now have. It was 90 feet high and 35 feet wide. This thing was supposed to take three months, but because of all the special effects and how difficult the puppets were to use, and because of uh, Peterson's perfectionism, it took one year instead. Instead of five to ten takes, this man would want up to 40. And that's for scenes with uh, our boy, Noah Hathaway. Huh, I wonder if they had child labor laws. I'm sure. I'm sure they did not, and I'm sure that those horses were not taken care of either. Mm. There's nothing at the end of that movie that says no animals were harmed during this picture. Animals were harmed <laughs> in the filming of that picture. Uh, now, talking about the puppets that were so difficult and took so much time, 
They had a downside and they had an upside. And that upside is part of the film's legacy today when you look back at it 35 years later. The downside was at the time, puppets like the dragon Falcor took 25 people to operate. We're talking one person per eyelid, one person for the uh, lower jaw. With all those people working, and these are considered great puppeteers, the special effects director, Brian Johnson, who we'll get to, was very happy with them, thought these were all very talented people. And the director was happy with them. All that said, they could never get the mouth movements to match the voices that they had already recorded. Oh, my goodness. It never happened. Now, the film was filmed originally in German and then dubbed over in English, but you should know everyone who watched it in English or whatever language all over the world. <laughs> There's no version where the puppets' mouths look good. They couldn't do it. But that said, Peterson's perspective, and I think he's right on this, is, quote, perfection can close everything off. It pressures you and rolls right over you. It feels like art, he's referring to the movie, because you feel the human beings behind it and not the technology behind it. And I think, well, he also talks about how you sense a real warmth from the actors talking to the puppets because they don't have to imagine them. They're right there in front of uh, them and that that's something you know that a lot of actors he says talk about today where they're acting with green screens and there's nothing there there was something there to fill their imagination to speak directly to and we the viewer are asked with the puppets to fill in with our imagination this human creation that we see and I have to say looking back on the film the puppets hold up way better than the CGI of that day did looking back at it 35 yeah. years later that, yeah, yeah. So, the people that made those puppets that held up so well, the design of the movie was from Italian artist, well, it was split three ways, but Italian artist Ulderico, uh, Italian-born, uh, lived in Germany for many years. He was a children's book illustrator and a painter of fantasy. Uh, the production designer, Rolf Zahetbauer, was already a winner of the Academy Award for Best Production Design for Cabaret in 1973. Oh, wow. Yes. Now, the, the, the special effects people are perhaps the most talented people working on the film. In fact, not even perhaps. Uh, Caprice Roth was the professional mime behind E.T., and it was those people that really handled the design. For how everything actually worked, the mechanics of it and how it came off visually, that was special effects director Brian Johnson. You know him from Alien, 2001, A Space Odyssey, and the Empire Strikes Back. Have you heard of these, right? No, no. You haven't? Oh, we've got to talk. Now, <laughs> he got a special achievement Oscar for Empire Strikes Back. He got a Best Visual Effects Oscar for Alien. So these people, um, the director and uh, the special effects director, are lauded in their fields, the special effects director even more. And I want to, you know, focus on what they were like to work with because Brian Johnson also had a terrible opinion of Noah Hathaway, uh, said that it was really hard to get anything for the director, Peterson, to get anything out of him, said the kid was actually a bit of a pain in the arse. And when uh, his interviewer, Sci-Fi Now, you know, this is an interview where they're reflecting decades later back on the movie, when the interviewer for Sci-Fi Now said we heard there was a problem with the Gamork 
puppet, he said he didn't recall any problem with it. For the record, there was a problem with the Gamork puppet, such a problem that in this in the climactic scene that those two have together, that Atreyu and Gamork have t- together, they were only able to do one take of the action of it because it injured the actor and nearly took out his eye. And Brian Johnson years later is like, no, there was no problem with my puppet. <laughs> so anyway, you know where I side with a child actor who's dealing with these egos of these accomplished grown men who are criticizing him even years later. You know, I came down very clear in my research on this. Now, Mihail's Enda's relationship with the film. Uh, he said that he originally trusted them to make something beautiful and he wanted to help with it. Eventually, they stopped working on the script together and didn't tell him what they were doing with it. And he had to sue to find out. It was only when a Munich court granted him the ability to see the script that he was able to see what they had done with it and say, take my name off this film. You can't put my name on this. Quote, the makers of the film simply did not understand the book at all. They just wanted to make money. Now, Peterson openly said that he made cuts to the characters and the scope of the world to make the film less expensive, and he also made it less dark to make it more broadly appealing, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that the family-oriented, more Disney-fied version that he wanted to make, while not going full Disney, he said, was something that Enda was against vehemently. He actually said that Enda's book had done so well that maybe he thought he was Jesus. He didn't know what was up with the guy, but that that was Peterson's take on, on Enda. And I think he in part had the confidence to have that take on Enda and on his own wisdom because he had dealt with somebody else who was an acclaimed author and he had gotten an Oscar nomination for his adaptation. But now I want to talk about with that author's problems with his script because Lothar Gunther Buchheim also said as Enda said, that Peterson completely misunderstood his book. And the way that he described it is really compelling and very easy to understand. He said that this book that he had written was anti-war at its core, that overall that's what it was. It took these people that were living on a U-boat under really dire conditions and were doing something difficult and awful for love of their country, right? Mm Mm-hmm but that also that should not be done. Mm. It's against war overall, even though these are good men trying to do something right. for love of country. It takes that book and turns it into, quote unquote, cheap, shallow American action flick. And more damning, he said that it fit right in with pro-war propaganda from the 40s. Oh, wow. That was his take on the film that was made from his movie by Peterson to make all that money cheap action flick that looked like it was out of Nazi propaganda, and he would know because that was what his job was in the war. That's how he learned about submarines. He got put on one to write propaganda, pro-war propaganda. And then he had to watch a film get made that looked like it was out of those reels that the Nazis used to show their people. Imagine his outrage. So when he says that this man didn't understand the core of his book on that level, perhaps Enda might have had a point as well. When he said that he missed the whole point, uh, part of that was that the film stops halfway through the book's story. 
And what Enda considered the primary action of the story, the most important bit of the story, begins in that half with the creative power um, and action of making uh, Fantasia, this land made of hopes mm-hmm. and dreams. That that's the core, actually, of the book that it builds up to in the halfway point, and the movie doesn't take any time with it. Enda said, quote, I was horrified. They had changed the whole sense of the story. Fantastica, which it's called in the book, reappears with no creative force from Bastion. For me, this was the essence of the book. Also, just I should mention, because everybody talks about how much he hated the Sphinxes, and so did he. He said it was one of the most embarrassing things about the book, or about the movie. Quote, they are full-bosomed strippers who sit there in the desert. (laughs) So, just thought I should mention it, because he hated it so much, even though it seems like a smaller thing. Anyway, he sued to keep the sequels from happening. And of course, he was unsuccessful. There were two more movies made. But the thing that he said about it stuck with me, and that is that, um, quote, my moral and artistic existence is at stake in this film. Uh, yeah, that's, I mean, I get that it's your baby. It is. And I get the thing that I connected to is what you talked about in the first segment, and that's the lack of respect that fantasy authors get. And so he's already taken this beating from all these people who are upset that... Um, Everyone loves his book so much, and he's aware of his legacy, and then this thing is made that he thinks actually doesn't connect to it and doesn't represent him well. Which is actually more famous than his book ended up being. Far more famous. Which is, you know, and it's funny because nowadays they would have wanted him to sign off on it because they would have wanted his help promoting for the fans. It's really kind of crazy to think of George R.R. Martin taking his name off Game of Thrones. Oh, and taking to the internet? Yeah. Oh, boy. Or can you imagine if The Lord of the Rings had come out and uh, Tolkien's estate had said, take his name off it? Yeah. Yeah, but that's the way the never-ending story was made. Uh, Just a few more notes about production for the end. It had no Oscar push, which surprised the people involved because they thought we're the kind of people that win Oscars. Um, But it did take in over $100 million worldwide. Uh, The title song, which many of you are very familiar with, got to number 17 on the U.S. billboards (laughs) and I think was number one in Norway and Sweden. Did well everywhere uh, outside of Germany where the song wasn't a part of the film. Also, another big difference with the international version is that it was edited down by seven minutes with help from Steven Spielberg. Because if it's 1984 and you need help editing your movie to appeal to the American audience, who would you go to but Steven Spielberg? Uh, So, fun little fact there. That's really interesting. I had read that uh, Michael, Mikhail Enda. (laughs) Mikhail. (laughs) Mikhail, Mikhail Enda did not like the movie. And I always kind of was like, oh, authors. Yeah, I kind of attributed it to that. But actually, listening to your segment, it makes sense. And um, how also the author the author of Dust Boot felt. It's very intense. Yeah, I actually, I gave Enda a lot more weight. I felt sympathetic to him the whole time, but I gave it a lot more weight when I read about the development of Dust Boot mm-hmm. and, the, and, and what his withering critique of it was on something that's really important. So now we get to our opinion segment, and we are going to pair, uh, we're going to pair this episode with Die, which is a comic book about adults having to return to some sort of fantasy world. A role-playing game fantasy world. A role-playing game fantasy world that they had escaped from as teenagers. So we want to talk about why we linked these two. And you were the one who suggested it, James, so why don't you go ahead? 
we're looking at uh, fantasy worlds and stories that are about not just escaping in the metaphorical way that we were talking about in your history segment, in your history segment, but in a literal way. Stories about actually fully escaping into a fantasy realm. Although, uh, from the looks of it, Die has a much darker take on what that well, could be Well, it sounds like. like the never-ending story has a much darker take on what it could be like, just you, not the movie. You know what? You're right. You're right. Although, I don't know about Die, but the never-ending story definitely comes down on the side of, you know, as we talked about earlier, uh, fiction being a place where you can learn things that you apply to your real life, that it's not just an escape, it's a chance for especially children who have limited life experience to empathetically experience things that will enable them to tackle the adversity they see in their life, a place where they have very little agency. Yeah, which is why I think fantasy is appropriate for children. But that's what the people say. Yeah, but we've all got hopes and dreams, and we all face some kind of adversity to getting to them. So I think I think it remains relevant. Of course, you know, I'm part of a fantasy sci-fi podcast, so <laughs> we're a little biased here. <laughs> and I haven't actually read Die yet. Have you? No, but I am so looking forward yeah, to it. it Just got amazing. it in the mail. Um, but I, I think these two will link really well. And I think the idea of escaping into another world and, you know, the psycho the psychology behind it is super fascinating. And I really wish that I'd been able to find more or read more articles on the person that gravitates towards fantasy. I'm sure there's some sort of study done somewhere about that. And if you know anything about it, please let me know. Oh, yes. If you've got a hot study about the kind of person that loves even comic books, demographic studies about that, about what their experience of life is in some kind of way that you can measure, that, that would be really interesting. And then also, did you enjoy The NeverEnding Story, James? Yes. Yes, I did. But it's a very measured yes. Uh, it was... I, I was awed by it as a kid, uh, especially uh, the scenes with Gamork, who is a vicious wolf monster, who is an agent of the power behind the nothing. I was terrified of Gamork when I was a kid, and that scene has stuck with me. It's like the thing I remember from the movie when I'd forgotten everything else. Um, that said... Rewatching it, I was struck by not great acting, uh, not very good script, and special effects in the CGI portions that really hadn't stood the test of time at all. It was, it was almost embarrassing. But puppets that were still terrifying. <laughs> that if you put me in a dark room with that thing I was scared of as a kid, I'd be scared of it as a grown man. And as a kid, I didn't get the themes of the movie and how uh, important they are to address. Um, I, I, I want to get your take on it, but I, I want to talk further about the movie's themes of hope versus despair because as an adult, I found it much more powerful and relevant than I did as a kid. Yeah, I remember loving this movie as a kid and thinking it was just wonderful, and I remembered nothing from it. I didn't watch it a ton of times. I think a friend had the movie, so I would watch mm -hmm. it at their house. Um, but coming back to it, I was a little bored um, I think it's the poorly written script um, and the bad acting, for sure. It just it didn't feel engaging, and I kept on waiting for that you know moment where it was going to take off for me because I remembered that moment as a kid where I was all of a sudden just in it and riveted and couldn't stop. 
Um, but it never quite happened. And I, I get what you're saying about the the themes of hope and how that is really beautiful and really important. And I think especially with the theme of escapism, that those, you know, that theme is really important as well. And we should say Fantasia is a world, maybe we should have mentioned this far earlier, but we learn that it is made up of all of humanity's hopes and dreams. That's what forms the land of Fantasia. So you can imagine how awful it is that there is a force out there that is destroying the hopes and dreams of mankind, particularly its children. That's the central conflict of the movie. Yeah, and that that is incredibly powerful, like, as you can imagine. It's just that the execution wasn't as good as I remembered. And I honestly think if the script and acting had been better, even with the not great special effects, it would have held up way more. Yeah, yeah. The dialogue wasn't good, but what it was clear the movie was trying to do, the message it was trying to bring the children really resonated with me. And I thought story-wise it was set up well, which I think really ends up being a credit to the original author, Enda. Um, There are, are parts of the movie where people you love are so dragged down by despair that they are letting themselves die. Yeah. Um, that happens multiple times in the film. And there is a plea made at one point by someone who loves a character that's dealing with that despair uh, to stay, stay with me. I love you. Don't let it overtake you. Don't let this sadness kill you. And as a kid, I don't know why, that did, didn't really strike me, you know? But I as think an it's adult, less world experience. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I didn't know as a kid how many people suffer from despair. I didn't. No. I had. I hadn't encountered that yet. And and the thing the movie knows is that you will, child, you will, and you'll meet adults who are just absolutely wrecked by it, who may mistreat you because of that, not help you achieve your dreams because of that, and you can overcome it. Yeah, it is a very powerful message. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that 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 really affected me. The overall and and the beauty of creation the beauty of your imagination creating a world which Enda felt should have been given much more focus in the film. Oh, yeah. And I can see why he thought that for sure. Yes. At the same time, the little bit that they do is still the most powerful, best part of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so that still comes across. Well, I'm excited to see how this pairs up with Die in two weeks. Yeah, I am worried that the purpose of Die will not be to show children that uh, hope can overcome <laughs> despair and and apathy can be overcome by your dreams, you know? Well, I think it's going to be something else. We'll find out. Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Claire White. And I'm James Foey. And we are Dragon Sexy Robots and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com. And we would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. You can find us on all the social medias at DSRA Podcast. That's Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I can be found at Along With Claire. That's C-L-A-I-R-E. And you can find me at James Foey Jr. That's F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R. And you can find our co-host Kyle Willoughby at Klex303. That's K-L-E-X-303. You can learn more about the never-ending story on our Facebook page, where we'll be posting some of the articles we read. Our producer is James Foey. Our logo is done by Patty Highland, and our theme was composed by Pete Rowan. 
Once again, this is Dragon Sexy Robots and Adventures, a nerd manual. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks. Bye.